Hello, this is Josh Banner, and you're listening to The Invitation. In this episode, I offer you a conversation I had recently with one of my instructors, Christopher Hall. I recently finished my third and final study retreat session with 30 members in my Doctor of Ministry cohort in Spiritual Direction. It's a degree program through Fuller Seminary. Students, instructors, along with facilitators, we all gathered at the Sarah Retreat Center in Malibu, California. I believe that this is the first doctoral level program of its kind in spiritual direction that's offered at a Protestant institution. There is probably something that should be said here about this on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But right now, I'll just say that I'm incredibly thankful to be in this program with this quality of instruction and the peers that are studying and practicing alongside of me. Inviting Christopher Hall into a conversation here is much more than adding to some sort of audio scrapbook for me to treasure and hold on to memories of these past three years with an incredible group of people. As you'll hear from this discussion, my interest is sharing this goodness with you, that you can come taste and see what has been changing and rearranging my heart, my mind, and my practice. Chris has gifts for the church and beyond, gifts for all of us to receive and respond to, gifts of wisdom, patience, and the clear, rigorous mind of a scholar. Christopher Hall was recently installed as the newest president of Renovare. That's the nonprofit started by Richard Foster. And if you've been following the Invitation podcast, you'll recognize previous contributions from Nathan Foster, also of Renovare. And in the next few months, I'll be offering you further conversations that I had with Trevor Hudson and Lacey Finn Borgo, some other contributing ministry team members of Renovare. Here in this conversation, Chris and I mainly discuss the question of transformation. Is it possible for us to be truly formed into Christ's likeness? The alternative is that participation in the church is merely a nice, feel-good event. Or on the other hand, being a Christian is just an exercise in ideological, theological, and philosophical correctness. It's a matter of being right while proving that others are wrong. Chris here helps us to dig deep into Jesus' invitation to be transformed into his very likeness. You'll hear Chris several times refer to a Christian as an image bearer. This is vocabulary that he often uses in the classroom as well. And what he means is that we are invited to become people who act like Jesus in terms of virtues like goodness, love, peace, and justice, not by some sort of heroic function of our guts to decide these things in the moment through our will, but because we have been so transformed by the Holy Spirit, goodness, love, peace, and justice are the things that naturally flow out of us. And in this way, we bear the image, the character, and the being of Jesus Christ himself. Chris and I talk here about Parker Palmer, 
Thomas Merton, Dallas Willard, of course, a bit about Michelle Alexander and James Baldwin. We discuss poverty and our prison system, as well as the changing multicultural nature of our country. We wrestle here with what we've been learning about incarceration rates and the racial disparities of our prison population. Chris goes on to tell about his recent visit to a maximum security prison in Nashville with his friend and former student, the social activist and author Shane Claiborne. We then move on to his main area of research and writing, the topic of the early church, especially the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And then finally, we integrate this prophetic desert spirituality back into these social justice questions, how exposing ourselves to the brokenness and sickness of our incarceration system, how our country uses the death penalty and the racism therein, how learning more about these things is a spiritual discipline. And as always with the invitation, the emphasis here is not on the abstract ideas. The question is if we can be in conversation to speak and listen to each other first and foremost for the voice of God. Listen for the Holy Spirit guiding you more to what makes sense rather than what is confusing. Prisons, racism, poverty the desert dwellers. These are hefty matters. I can say that I personally find incredible delight in considering these things. And of course, that's why I'm sharing these things with you. But it's not always been so with me. If you'd asked me three or four years ago if I would be in a prison, I had no way to imagine the kind of change that would begin happening inside of me, that I would grow and to love the men at Brooks so much. In the last five-minute prayer episode, I shared episode number 15. We meditated on the idea that God is always more. There is more of God and His kingdom for us to discover, to fathom, and to participate in. As you listen here to Chris Hall, consider how much more of the kingdom rings true inside of this good man. Yes, he's written some books, taught in colleges and seminaries, collected lots of ideas, but what you can hear in Chris is a man who knows these things inside of himself. He is open and attentive to the Holy Spirit. He's full of delight, and this is what is best of all. Chris is optimistic. He is a scholar who can laugh and smile. As you'll hear in this conversation, Chris is not too eager to indulge my pessimism a pessimism of which I continue to repent. So Chris Hall, I am really thankful to have you on the microphone here. We're at the Sarah Retreat Center in Malibu. It's good to be with you. It's it's uh, our third year in... Wow. The uh, program, if you can wow. believe that. Hard to believe. <laughs> and I want to uh, introduce some of my friends to the gifts that you've given to me and our cohort. And so uh, a little bit of background to start us off. I know you 
were the chancellor at Eastern for a while, and now you're serving as the president of Renovare, and that's been for how long? It's been since uh, I got installed as president of Renovare in June of 2015. Okay. So it's been just a little bit over two years. Okay. <laughs> I, I chuckling yeah. because yeah. it is amazing how quickly time flies. Yeah. 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 And so what people don't might not understand is that Renovare does not have a building and a location that you serve across the country and sometimes the world. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. Actually, I'm a technological uh, troglodyte, <laughs> as those who work with me will attest, <laughs> including uh, Nathan Foster and Carolyn Ahrens and yeah. so on. Um, but with Skype, it's mm -hmm. the most amazing thing. With Skype, Nathan lives in, Nathan Foster, for folks, folks listening in, mm -hmm. uh, our director of education, he lives in St. Augustine, Florida, Brian Morricon, who some of you are going to be getting to know better if you're, if you're Renovari folks, mm -hmm. who's just come on full-time with us. He lives in Tampa. Mm -hmm. Carolyn Ahrens, our director of education, lives in Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. Justine Olofsky, who helps us with a host of administrative issues and so on. Many of you might know her who are listening. Mm -hmm. um, she lives in Seattle. And Joan Scully lives in Denver, Colorado. Wow. People think I live in Denver. I live in the Philadelphia suburbs because my wife didn't want to move to Denver. <laughs> and it's all because of the technology we have. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer a need to invest uh, deeply in mortar and stone and have some kind of corporate headquarters and so on, which I'm really happy about. So there's a kind of flexibility that opens up to us, among other things. What do you think is the role of Renovare at this point in this, in the, where the church is? You know, as you as you have been there for a couple of years, you've been involved and in friends with Richard Foster and Dallas Willard for years. Actually, I I, I know Richard mm -hmm. Dallas. I crossed paths with mm -hmm. at least six times. I think it was mm -hmm. once we were in the same car together. Once we were sitting at a table with five, six people at the table, including Dallas and me. But I'm kind of shy, and uh, I thought, you know, this guy is so busy, and people are always asking him questions and this and that. So I kept quiet. I was friendly, but I kept quiet. Now I wish I had asked him all the questions I would have wanted to ask him. So I didn't know, I didn't know uh, yeah. Dallas other very, personally very well, mm -hmm. other than through his writing, okay. which I used. And of course, I used to teach at Eastern called Foundations of Christian Spirituality. So I used to, uh, his material, Rich's material, uh, Renovari material, uh, some of John Ortberg's books and mm -hmm. so on. For a long, long time, uh, and I've gotten to know John a little bit, mm -hmm. but Dallas was the one. Yeah. And then, he, then uh, he headed home, and I have a lot of questions I'll ask him in the future, mm -hmm. if I can put it that way. That's great. That's great. Now, the question about yeah. uh, what is Renovari up to mm -hmm. and its relationship to the church. So imagine, Josh, imagine you or a listener has been going to church for 25 years. It could be any 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 kind of church. So it could be an evangelical church or a mainline church or uh, my, my home is the Anglican church, whatever it might be. And you wake up one morning after a long time in church and you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, I'm the same person I was 25 mm. years ago. Mm. I haven't changed. Mm. So I, I haven't, it seems, grown in my ability to love God, mm 
and uh, my desire to love God made me, and I haven't uh, grown in, in terms of my love for other people. I'm pretty much the same person I was t- 25 years ago, and 25 years have passed. Mm-hmm. Transformation isn't occurring. Mm-hmm. So Renovari's mission is to help image bearers mm-hmm. like that, help image bearers to change. Mm-hmm. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God at work in somebody's life, and uh, as many folks would know, through the practice of these classical spiritual disciplines mm-hmm. that both uh, Richard and Dallas have written about so extensively. Mm-hmm. And then Nathan's written a couple of books that are good books. Mm-hmm. I think the one that's more deeply related to the spiritual disciplines themselves is the making of an ordinary saint. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. So we have a very specific mission. And then... Um, learning to think well about God, not only to think well about God, but to, how to put it, to uh, nurture our relationship with God. So uh, my background is in church history and Mm -hmm. in theology and um, spiritual formation stuff. So when I write, that's always in the back of my mind. I I want people to understand what I I would call the history of the Holy Spirit, how God's worked in history, in the church, and so on. But always with this, this uh, emphasis on, all right, if, if God is, is like this, how can we come to know God better? And, mm. and then we go from there. But that's what Menavari is about. Mm. So we're not a seminary, mm-hmm. and we're not an evangelistic organization, mm-hmm. though what goes on in the seminary and what might go on in the Billy Graham uh, organization and so on would be things we'd support and be really interested in. And at, at, at times, someone might indeed come into the kingdom, but our focus is more on folks who've been in the kingdom of God for a long time and long to uh, long to grow deeper in their relationship with God and to be more deeply formed and shaped into the image of Christ. So, when you talk about spiritual formation, I'm still trying to help folks unpack the difference between that and discipleship. And I've known that, as you say, there's there's not transformation. It seems like there might have been a spike early on, and then it either flatlines spiritually or it declines. The evangelical tradition I come from would say, this is not a religion, this is a relationship. All right, I've heard that language. And yeah. they're trying to do discipleship. So why do we, why does Renovare hold this language of, spiritual formation as opposed to discipleship? Where does that come in with, with knowledge of God and the Holy Spirit? Good question. Okay. <laughs> Multifaceted. <laughs> Sorry. So a so, uh, little bit about my background. Yes, please. So the way that I found Christ was through the Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. What year were you born, Josh? 1975. <laughs> okay, you were born in 1975. Yeah. So we're particularly talking just a little bit earlier. I st- oh, boy. I started UCLA in 1968. And right around that time, and then on into 71, 72, and through most of the 70s, there was a, re- a renewal revival movement that broke out on uh, the University of California campus up at Berkeley. UCLA, other California schools, and then rippled out pretty much across the country. And so uh, how did I enter the kingdom? Well, someone told me about Jesus, Mm -hmm. and they uh, 
pretty much use the language of a Christian can come into a relationship with God. There's a prayer you can pray and so on. So I did all those things. Uh, I, I don't have a day I can turn to, but I know I did. Mm-hmm. And I must have prayed that prayer just to make sure 500 to 1,000 times. I wanted to make sure I was in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so then I ended up uh, finishing school at UCLA. I thought I was going to become a lawyer and was going to head down to the University of San Diego and changed my mind when I started attending some classes at a local uh I guess at that time they would have called it a Jesus People Bible School mm. with the name The Light and Powerhouse. <laughs> and so um, the teachers there who, who dramatically helped me change would, would talk about discipleship, but they wouldn't use the language of spiritual formation. Not too many people at that time were using that language in the evangelical world. Uh, it has a background, I think, in Roman Catholicism, um, not, I don't think so much the language of orthodoxy, but orthodox folks with a big O mm-hmm. and Roman Catholic folk would, would, would know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, the folks at the Leiden Powerhouse were really good mm-hmm. at helping me understand how does one come into a relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then they would use the language of discipleship. Mm-hmm. So what did a disciple do? Well, from most of what I heard, was a disciple shares his faith with other people and helps them to enter the kingdom of God. There wasn't a heck of a lot of of teaching about the church in general. And if there was one weakness, it would be, uh, as I look back, these folks were able to help me move into the kingdom. And I don't blame them one whit. But there was not a lot of teaching about how to live once, was, once one was in the kingdom. How do you live as a disciple of Jesus? It was uh, the Jesus movement was strongly, strongly evangelistic, helping people to get in, into the kingdom, if I can use that kind of language. And it was remarkable how many, how many college students, for example, were responding in faith. The, the, the soft underbelly, of the Jesus movement, not just the light powerhouse, but the, the soft underbelly of the Jesus movement was most of the leaders didn't have a lot of training themselves in terms of, well, what do we do next other than tell people about Jesus, which is always important. But so, for example, uh, I wasn't a terribly loving person at the time. I wasn't psychopathic or anything or a sociopath, but I wasn't terribly loving. I hadn't been taught how to love. How do you learn how to love somebody else? So that's a spiritual formation question. And it would be one that if I had asked in class, say, probably a teacher would have looked at me a little bit quizzically. That language of how do you actually change so that day in and day out, you're increasingly more and more like Jesus himself. So it's not so much what would Jesus do is what kind of a person do you need to become so that you can do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And I think, I think it's, it's too quick a jump just to what would Jesus do. So that's kind of my background. And so what we try to do at Renovari, I think the church is at the heart and core of our mission. So what we want to do is interact with uh, pastors and priests, uh, 
uh, whatever the denomination might be, whether it's the, what I might call the big three over the years, the, the Orthodox communion or the Catholic uh, communion or um, the Anglican communion, whether it's those folks or whether it's the, the, uh, the Protestant communities and all their variations, our, uh, our mission would be how can we help folks in the church to become increasingly like the one they desire to, to follow so faithfully. So a disciple is a follower who's been taught. Matetes in Greek means, there's a Greek verb. <laughs> Didn't mean to get into this, folks, but we there's a Greek verb. Mateto, uh, which means to learn, mm -hmm. to learn. So uh, a disciple is somebody who's learning mm -hmm. about the one she's following, mm -hmm. but not simply learning data. Mm -hmm learning stuff, she's learning about a person who himself uh, led a very disciplined spiritual life so that he could discern what his father was asking him to do and do it through the power of the Spirit. We could talk for hours about this stuff, but it's probably it. you know, not a good idea. Well, that's helpful just to get some bearings. I, I have been working to get ready for my doctoral project that I'll be Which I look forward to seeing. <laughs> and uh, in that preparation, as we've talked about my, uh, my friends in the prison and being in prisons and then going back and reading books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and watching the documentaries like I Am Not Your Negro about James Baldwin and then uh, the 13th, about the 13th Amendment that uh, allowed for the uh, indentured service of prisoners. This slavery was done away with, but the 13th Amendment says that we can still um, put black men, basically, to work. And so we've always had this mythology of the black man as the scapegoat. And so as I've reflected on this as not necessarily as a scholar, but as a spiritual director, and this question of transformation and formation, realizing that the prison system is the, uh, you could call it the epistemic blindness, you could call it the formational blindness, the stuck, the, what, what's, what's really uh, revealing that American Christianity is apparently not ever believed in transformation. Mm -hmm. And that, so I'm trying to work on that without being a finger wagger, but this is the spirit of Dallas. She's saying this is I'm sorry to say it. This is who we are. And so spiritual formation. And why do you think it is? Have you done the research or talking with others? Do you know any people that know why it is that the, the gospel in America is particularly light and, and, and bereft of a sense of transformation as, a, as, as at the heart of the gospel? Okay. So, <laughs> so we work together a lot. Like we're in this program here. Yeah. Um, yeah. This demon program at Fuller here in uh, Malibu at this Franciscan center. So if I was, um, how to put this? I don't know that I would say that the church in, in America, and I don't, I don't remember exactly how you put it, is bereft mm -hmm. of uh, thinking deeply about issues of transformation. I, I think that at least my experience has been yeah. that when uh, 
Christians here are exposed to, for example, what's going on in the prison system, mm -hmm. it really touches them. Yeah. Uh, I was so proud. If I could, I was so proud of Christianity today. Mm -hmm. I've been involved with CT for a long time, mm -hmm. and they had their most recent issue of CT had on the cover a noose. Okay. A noose. Wow. And then on every page of this article about lynching in America, on every page of the uh, article, they had listed the names from a monument that Brian Stevenson down with the Equal Justice Initiative in Georgia, mm -hmm. or, excuse me, I misspoke, in um, Alabama. Mm -hmm is actually constructing the name of every person who's ever been lynched in the United States. Wow. So it's quite striking. This is on the cover, though. This is why it's encouraging to me. It's on the cover of Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of conservative American evangelicalism for 40, 50 years. It's Billy Graham's magazine. Now, that I was so surprised to see that. Number one, because, as, as you mentioned, uh, we can we can be blind at least to some social issues. So I'd say evangelicals have not been blind to issues regarding the value of human life, mm. issues regarding abortion. That's pretty much been at the top of the list. But I would argue that evangelicals have been to generalize, mm. but I think there's there's truth in the generalization, strikingly blind to issues of racism. Mm -hmm makes people feel really uncomfortable, um, strikingly blind, and either terribly ill-informed or misinformed about what's going on in the prison system, incarceration rates of, rates of uh, African Americans, for example, compared to incarceration rates of uh, white folks and so on. I think there is something like African Americans make up 13% of the American population, but 43% yep. of the pop, of the prison population. And the United States has 12% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So well, it might be 12%. I think Shane was Shane Claiborne yeah. uh, was tossing out at me the other day, maybe 5% okay. of the world's population. 5% okay. mm -hmm. of the world's population, but... Um, 45% of the incarcerated okay. yeah. <laughs> population. Now, we're talking about yeah. all those countries yeah. out there, mm -hmm. whether it be North Korea, mm -hmm. China, mm -hmm. uh, Russia, whatever it might be, the, uh, uh, Iran, Iraq, the, the countries at the top of our, we don't like those folks, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Right. Um, we incarcerate ourselves 45% mm -hmm. of the world's population. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how uh, our our justice system mm -hmm. has grown and developed. But there's a lot of other reasons why this is going on. Mm -hmm. My point would be um, th uh, that when when uh, when Christian folks t uh, hear about these yeah. things, they get interested. Mm -hmm. It might. It sometimes it makes them mad. Those figures can't possibly be correct. Or we don't act like that. That's not what America's right. like. Well. Uh, Visit some folks in prison yeah. and hear their stories. That's a, a, what I would call the spiritual discipline of moving your body mm -hmm. to a different place. Mm -hmm. Just taking your body, move it, move it in, uh, at least visit a, an area of town that's a rough place to visit. 
See how people are living. See how they're trying to support themselves. Visit a prison. You can do it. It's, it's not always easy to get in, but you can, you can by God's grace, uh, sometimes the doors will open and begin to hear the, the stories of folks who are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had the opportunity last week uh, with Shane Claiborne. Some of you listening might know that name. Uh, and Shane and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, because I'm old, I, I, he used to actually be one of my students at Eastern University. Anyway, um, just by uh, the grace of God and a door opening up, we were uh, visiting death row prisoners uh, at a prison in Tennessee mm. last week. So I had a chance just to go in, sit down, and talk with these folks and and listen to how they got there, what were the mistakes they made, what are they learning while there, what's prison life like, and so on. Now, it would be interesting if we took a poll of people who are listening to this broadcast, how many folks are well-informed about the prison system in the United States, well-informed, and how many have actually visited folks who are in prison? I don't ask those questions to make people feel guilty. I ask them because... People in prison have always been very important to God. Old Testament scriptures, Jesus' teaching, Paul's experience, Peter's experience as prisoners, these folks, many of whom have done things that, that are awful to contemplate, are God's image bearers and uh, very important to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, I think that there's a a willingness amongst the American Christian community to learn Mm -hmm. and amongst the American evangelical community to learn. But also, um, uh, it it seems like this is just something endemic to the human personality. We'll all tend to see certain things very clearly oftentimes areas of human life that are related to our own experience. And there'll be other things that we'll really be blind to. We just don't see them. We don't see what the problem is. So if we're white folks who've grown up in that context, what's going on in the African-American community is largely um, a mystery to us. We're just not informed. I only became a, a little bit more informed when I deemed Palmer Seminary. Uh, in Philadelphia, 65% African-American. Mm. Well, it was a wonderful experience. Mm. But I knew when I moved into that particular context that I had to just keep quiet and listen. Mm. As much as I could, keep quiet, listen, ask questions, don't get ahead of myself. Uh, what would these image bearers have me uh, learn about their particular community? So Shane has been a really uh, is a good model for me for engagement. He's he's very gentle with folks who don't know what perhaps they should be better informed about. He's very consistent in his commitments. So he moved to a rough street in North Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. I think it was um, 1998 mm-hmm. with a group that he helped start called the Simple Way. He's still living there. He's just part of the neighborhood. So this kind of, uh, I think, 
regarding these issues, Josh, whether it's uh, incarceration rates, whether it's the history of lynching in the United States, 5,000 people lynched. 5,000. 4,996, I think is the exact number, or 91. 5,000. These are, these are human beings, image bearers, lynched, but not simply hung, but often tortured to death in unspeakable ways. Uh, so there's a history that I think, as Americans, we need to learn about, acknowledge, and in some cases, repent of. And um, it's not easy. Right. Right. And that's, that's the difficult work that I'm trying. When I say that, and, and it's a very difficult thing because I've been a pastor and I want to love the church. I don't want to, I don't want to stand around and beat up the church. I know there's some Christian uh, authors and speakers that have made a kind of a cottage industry of being cynical about the state of the church. I'm not interested in cynicism. As you just said, I'm interested in repentance. And when it comes to our blindness uh, as white folks of the, the condition for black Americans, when I say that, you know, James Baldwin says, uh, how can I do this with censoring it? He says, um, what white folks in America need to figure out is why they need an N word. Because I am not an N-word. He says, I am a man. And if you think that I am an N-word, then you must need me to be one. Mm. And you need to ask yourself why you have that need. And so when I pull on that string and start looking at that and these gross numbers you're, you're, you're citing, then it's so out of sight and so out of mind most are intimidated and afraid of these topics. So we just kind of tuck it away and move on and go back to church. But if we really look at this, it really does show me that there's a sickness and, and a lack of an understanding of the gospel is transformative. transformative. So, But I, I heard you kind of pushing back. Maybe that's too big of a statement. Well, I think that uh, there's aspects of what – so if I'm going to call somebody to repentance mm – -hmm. The first finger I need to point mm -hmm. is at my own chest. Amen. What am I blind to? Amen. What I continue to be blind to in my own perspectives and behavior. Thank you. And I'm not <laughs> referring to you. No. I really am. I'm not. I'm just thinking when that that's a really good place to start. Mm -hmm. So for it was for years and years. I didn't know about what was going on in the prisons. I, di I didn't know in great detail about the history of racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons was I hadn't uh, read, read in that area. When I was in school at UCLA, I was a history major, but I liked ancient history mm -hmm. and so on. So for all of us, I think we could ask this question regarding these particular mm -hmm. issues. What do I know or not know about incarceration in the United States of America. Thank you. What do I know or not know? This is for every listener mm -hmm. about the law and how the law is being carried out regarding the execution, the killing mm -hmm. of prisoners. Mm -hmm. And then other questions. Why is it that so many more African-American prisoners are being executed than others. Mm -hmm. 
And it's, it's so there's issues regarding what's going on uh, and attitudes within the, the larger uh, white community towards the African-American community and uh, uh, lots and lots to learn. But there comes a point in time where what we're learning, as things become clear, then we are called uh, to acknowledge perhaps our own complicity and how things have got to be this way. Mm-hmm. And also, all right, now I know these things, what am I going to do? And generally, that's the pinch points. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Because if we're going to to act at that point, it's going to cost something. Mm-hmm. Even if it's going to cost time, we're going to have to move in, in, into environments that might make us feel uncomfortable. We're going to have to be willing to learn, mm-hmm. to learn. And so it's regarding the African-American community, mm-hmm. issues regarding the Hispanic community. Um, uh, this country is changing. This country is changing. Uh, it's it, it's how I hate to keep using these these terms. It's going to be less and less white mm-hmm. and more and more multicolored. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's going to be. Right. So uh, it's uh, I would say it's it's counterproductive to allow fear mm-hmm. or ignorance or prejudice mm-hmm. or anger or suspicion to be the dominant passions influencing us as we're called as as Christians and as God's image bearers to work through these issues and to, as the prophets might put it, to right wrongs. Mm -hmm. So we have to name what the wrong is, identify it before God, and then whatever small steps each one of us can take mm-hmm. to be willing to take those steps. Let's get out. You're reminding me of the work I've done and Christian approach to ecology and environmental care. And, and the, there's a kind of a basic rule of thumb, know where uh, your food is coming from and where your waste is going. And if you start tugging on those questions, looking underneath the surface, so you're saying in a like similar way in terms of uh, uh, this racism in, in their incarceration system, just look at incarceration, look at how it happens, look at um, uh, death row, uh, execution rates, and uh, the statistics behind that. And, and then visit a prison and uh, step outside of your, uh, your safe comfort zone. And that's easier said than done. If there's anybody in West Michigan that wants to come to a prison, you can join me. Well, there you go. <laughs> Some of my favorite people on the planet are at the E.C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon, Michigan. So um, so you were talking about your interest in ancient uh, history. And so you are bringing to our coursework a focus on the desert dwellers, the desert Abbas and Amas. And so I, I wouldn't want to ask you what the desert dwellers would want to say in terms of their own prophetic voice to these matters. But first, before we can integrate these things, give, give folks a, a, a sense of who are the desert dwellers? Why are you, what led you to the d- desert dwellers? Why are they important for us to read today? Well, uh, so who are these? That's a funny term, desert dwellers. Uh-huh. Who are these folks? So these are folks who, 
in all likelihood, from the end of the second century on through uh, the third century, and then even more well-known in the fourth, were for folks who, for example, headed out into the desert in Egypt and formed uh, formed uh, communities there. The communities, in all likelihood, coming out of um, individuals who just went out there and decided to live in the desert uh, and seek God. Now, we might say, well, why in the world were they? That's crazy. Um, They were following a pattern that they saw in the scripture. So the people of Israel were in the desert for 40 years, learning about God, being challenged by God, um, learning to live well before God on some days and other days in in rebellion and so on. But they were in the desert. Uh, Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, Mark says, he uses a really strong verb. He says that Jesus was driven out into the wilderness, into the desert. There was was an encounter that Jesus was to have um, with the evil one and, of course, his temptations and so on. So so the, the, the desert can be... And was for these folks, this is Parker Palmer's phrase, a learning space. A learning space. So if you're listening, you might ask yourself the question, what have been my learning spaces? Has it been a particular geographical space, for instance, that demanded something of me? Folks, does that make sense? a learning space, a geographical place, that to live in that space will demand something of me. To live in the desert, for example, I'm from Arizona, uh, at least for part of my life when I was a little boy from age 5 to 10. I love the desert. But one thing I learned very quickly about the desert uh, from my dad and also just by being in the desert is you have to be careful here. You can get bit. There, there are little creatures there or sometimes larger creatures that if you're not careful, they'll surprise you. It's hot here. At times it could be boring. It's demanding. You have, to be, you have to have your eyes open. You have to be listening carefully and so on. A lot just in the geographic space. And so in light of the biblical uh, references to the desert and what goes on in the desert, patterns in Jesus' own life, People moved out into the desert to live in a demanding learning space so that they would learn to hear in a different way, to see in a different way, with the goal being to draw ever nearer to God. Now, some folks would then say at that point, well, that's kind of selfish. Just heading out to be by yourself uh, for the, the sake of your own spiritual life. What about all those people back in the city? For, so, for example, in Egypt, it would be, what about all the people in Alexandria down at the coast? And the general pattern seems to be the, that folks would move out to the desert, be out there for years and years. People would hear about what's going on and would go out and visit them. So there was a cross-pollination that was taking place. People were learning about God in a very specific geographic environment, immersing themselves, for example, in the text of Scripture, prayer, and so on, people heard what was going on. Oh, did you hear? Uh, 
Did you hear about these Amas and Abbas, these fathers and mothers who were living out in the desert of all places? The word's out that Antony is, uh, is, is actually, there's, there might even be miracles occurring out there. And so people would move out. It's, it sometimes irritate the Amas and the Abbas, but they'd, they'd move out, see what was going on, take it back into the city with them. And sometimes uh, the desert dwellers themselves would show up uh, in the city. Uh, Anthony the Great, I'm not sure how many readers know of Anthony, but he was one of these first Abbas out there. Anyway, so he would show up occasionally in Alexandria if he knew a Christian was on trial or a Christian likely to be martyred or on trial and could end up uh, dying for her faith. Say. So he'd, he'd just show up in the, in, uh, in the courtroom. He might end up talking to a Roman procurator about what was going on. The procurator would be aware of who Anthony was and so on. Yeah, even that was relevant to our discussion about prisons. Right. So, you have, so you have the idea, we move into a particular learning space with the desert, it's very demanding geographically. God begins working on us. Change begins to occur because these folks were in the desert learning to pray, uh, learning to uh, read the scripture well, communally, any a number of things going on there. And then they would move back into a different context, and people would know these people to speak generally again. These people have changed. They've been transformed. They know God in a way I don't know God. And the Roman procurators were spotted too, or the Roman governors were spotted. And so I can, I can almost see, for example, when Anthony would show up in a, in, a, in a courtroom, I can see the judge kind of rolling his eyes and saying, all right, this is going to be other than what I had thought this day. So um, when it comes to the prison system, for example, so we move into a learning space ourselves. Now we're going to move away from the desert dwellers sure. for a moment. We move into our own learning space. Could be a geographical space. Mm -hmm. We we learn to pray. We learn to study. We learn to be quiet. We learn to meditate upon Scripture. We learn to lead a more simple life, whatever it might be. Through the power of the Spirit, the grace of God, we begin to change. And, and then the Lord says, "You know, I'm not." terribly interested that you lead a comfortable life. I want you to lead a loving life. And then in all likelihood, I would think the Lord might have a door or two for each of us to step through that will ask something of us. Oh, Lord, I'd rather just be at home and watch the eagles play. Something like that. Well, I appreciate that, but there's something else I'd rather that you do. And it's going to demand something of you if you, if you uh, take me to this place. And so, um, and so we maybe move into a new area. So, it's a, it, so, the, so the desert dwellers were people who were learning. Now, I think that they would probably say, we're learning to pray. We're learning to study. We long to be ever more deeply formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. We think this is the right space for this to happen. And then we do know that we have a responsibility to the broader world 
And I think for some of those folks, their responsibility for the broader world was simply to pray. Uh, some folks listening would know the name Thomas Merton. Well, Merton's in Gethsemane. Of all places, he's in Gethsemane in Kentucky and spends most of his life by himself. Yet, through his prayer, through his writings and so on, he's touched thousands, countless numbers of lives. And one time he was walking through the streets of, I don't know if there is a Gethsemane, Kentucky, but it was a local town. He talks about walking up to a stoplight. I think it was a Fourth stop. Fourth and Walnut. Fourth and Walnut. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Fourth and Walnut. And it's an aha moment. Yeah. Now I realize why I'm praying the way I'm praying, why we're praying the way that we're praying. We're, what does he say? We're holding the world together, something like that. We're holding the world together. And he said, he said, and he had. Such a profound love for everyone as he looked across. He just yeah, this, that's this right. deep movement of affection for people that he hadn't even seen for years because he'd been praying in this hermit. Well, I don't know if he's in hermitage, hermitage yet, but at some point, yeah, during his. So if, if so, if you're listening, you might have a learning space that's a hospital room because mm-hmm. you're ill, or you're listening and you're thinking. I'm, I've been so lonely. I lost my husband. I lost my wife or whatever. Uh, it's been a tough stretch. Or I'm getting older and older. It's not as easy as it once was to move my body around and so on. Am I, can I still uh, have a vibrant, how would I put it, a vibrant ministry to other people? And I'd say, sure. As long, I think what the desert dwellers would say, as long as you are conscious, you can pray. As long as you're conscious, you can pray. And it's just a kind of prayer. We were talking about this in class today, weren't yeah. we? A prayer like, Lord, have mercy. So I was sharing with Josh and other students. Uh, my, my, my own wife has been under the weather for a good stretch. And then Hurricane Irma. And then the hurricane that rippled up the coast in Florida. What was that hurricane name? Do you remember? Well, there was uh, Irma and then Jose and then Maria. So so there's Irma in Houston. There's these hurricanes. um, Yeah, my brain's not working. Well, whatever it is. (laughs) The ones that rolled up over uh, Puerto Rico and then up Mm -hmm. through Florida and so on. Then the earthquake in Mexico. All of this happening within the span of a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. along with uh, the instability in the world today, the world's a very volatile place, the, the uh, tensions between North Korea and the United States. I mean, just, it just seems unending. Mm-hmm. And it was about 1030 at night, and I looked over at Deb, my wife, and her eyes were teary, and she said, sometimes it's just too much to bear. And I said, I know. I said, I know. And then a very simple prayer. We could still pray. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. And that's a really good prayer. And uh, these desert dwellers, they they like that prayer. So they, they didn't want things to get too complicated. It's really helpful in the sense of what I hear you saying is, 
it makes me think of some people might caricaturize the bleeding heart liberal who's the activist or on the other hand the young college student who wants to go dig dig wells in Africa and uh, rescue um, women that are caught in sex trafficking and we want to go out we have the sense of injustice what the desert dwellers do is they bear witness to the sense that we go back to the word transformation. We don't really know what is best for the world until we have gotten part of God's heart. And so I think of my wife, uh, she's, that makes sense to me. Yeah. My wife would joke around and say, Lord, I I don't want to marry a pastor and I don't want to live in a cold place. Well, (laughs) we live in Michigan. I'm not ordained, but I do. I'm in the ministry. And, um, and, and so there's that, that sense of like, I, I don't want a God. And I don't want to deal with racism. I don't want to look at prisoners. I don't want to stretch myself. So the witness is, well, go into this learning space. Open yourself to the transformative work. So if we believe that God changes us, then he will move us to risk. That's what I hear you saying. There's a kind of of risk. Well, let's think about this for you. You know me in words. Mm -hmm. So there's a... Uh, a stretching that surely would take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, we've been talking about prisoners, mm-hmm. issues of race, all this issues surrounding executions mm-hmm. and incarcerations. But there's also the poor, mm-hmm. just poor people who have poor living conditions. Um, the poor, the widowed, the orphan, issues of loneliness, all of these mm-hmm. things that both conservatives and liberals I, I think actually, yeah, not just liberal folk politically who care about these things. It's it's, uh, sure. it's, it's uh, folks who are, take a conservative stance. It's just, it's just at that point, how would we address the right. problem? So when you think about folks, when you think about uh, what we've said, there's a phrase that Josh mentioned that comes back to mind. Chris, Josh whatever your name is, if you're listening, Mm -hmm. I'm now going to ask you to move beyond Mm -hmm. your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I think the call would be, well, Lord, uh, I accept that. Mm -hmm. But it makes me feel nervous. I feel a little bit afraid. Mm -hmm. I feel like I might be out of my depth. I don't particularly like those people. I mean, whatever it might be, when when I look at Jesus' ministry, he seems to be continually, consistently pushing people beyond their comfort zone for their own sake and for the sake of other image bearers. I think that's the, the pattern. And it's in, in some ways we're back to where we began when we started this conversation. Right. What does Renovari do? Yeah. It helps people to be ever ever more deeply transformed and shaped into the image of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then spiritual formation is not simply to comfort us, mm-hmm. although there is comfort to be received. Mm-hmm. It's to uh, also uh, form and shape us in such a way that our level of sensitivity and responsiveness mm-hmm. to the needs of the world increases, mm-hmm. 
knowing each one of us, knowing that as it does so, something will be asked of us. Not everything, but something will be asked of us. And when we're in that, that it can feel like a crucible of faith, we're actually appropriating more of God and becoming more like Him, and it ends up being part of the kingdom and a kind of joy that we wouldn't have if we just stayed at home. The folks in Michigan would be watching, you know, the lions, not the the, the eagles. Wow. <laughs> but <laughs> some of them would. But just, you know, instead of just the, the, the faith becomes active, mm-hmm. faith becomes something that doesn't just change me. It changes uh, communities, families, structures. That's the gospel springing yeah. up from the ground that there's hope, hope of salvation. Yeah. Hope of salvation. Mm-hmm. Hope of uh, recreation. Mm-hmm. All those good Reformed theologians mm-hmm. in Michigan. Nice. Regeneration, recreation, Amen. renewal, Amen. transformation. Amen. Yeah, all that, all those good things. Amen. Well, Chris, Chris Hall, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. Blessings to everybody. Amen. So as you listen to this conversation, what did you hear inside of your heart and soul? Before you turn this podcast off, take some time and review where your mind and heart have been drawn to. What were you excited by? What leaves you curious? Did anything here trouble you or even make you angry? Spend some time pondering these things. Talk to Jesus about your curiosities, your confusions, and even your anger. Does anything here scare you? Prisons, desert dwellers, stretching outside of your comfort zone. This is intimidating stuff. But can you imagine that there may be more joy and love to discover here? Do you believe the Holy Spirit can continue to change you as Chris says, into an image bearer? Do you find within yourself a mustard seed of hope that the Spirit might be changing you even right now? prayerful consideration, I leave you with a reading from Chris's book, Worshiping with the Church Fathers. He writes, Change is hard, terribly hard, distressingly hard. Our battle against particular temptations and sins may last for years. As a valued mentor once said to me, spiritual growth is the slowest of all human movements. We are tempted to give up. We are tempted to succumb to discouragement. I'll never change, we say, on the days we fail. I might as well give up. I've confessed this sin a thousand times. Sometimes we think, I'm struggling because of my environment. If only I moved, found a new job, a new school, a new place to live, a new wife or new husband, all would be different. 
But the wisest desert fathers advise us not to be self-deceived, to stay where we are and not flee from our sin, deflect it onto others, or blame our sins on our environment. They teach us to keep confessing. Even if we confess to sin over and over, we ought to confess it one more time. Amen. I especially want to say hello to those of you who have subscribed to the mailing list in the last month. I know several of you have found your way over to the Invitation Podcast, I'm sure through the recent co-release with Nathan Foster on the Renovare Podcast site. Some of you have even reached out via email to say hello, and I want to thank you. I really enjoy the interaction, and I especially want to be of help to you as you attempt to live into the depths of God's love, whatever that looks like in your neck of the woods. I have several other conversations to release soon on the podcast, but I don't want to dump all of them on the internet without pacing them with the guided retreats, whether they're the short or the long formats. Our friend Sharon Garlow-Brown has promised to write and record a long-format retreat sometime this winter, and I'm working on some other contributions from others while also enjoying making some new music for the podcast. Our baby girl, Merit Therese, will be four months soon, and so our house is becoming one giant gooey mess of love for her as our two boys and her parents dote on and coddle her. Susanna and I are team teaching a first year seminar at Hope College on beauty and prayer. And I also continue to teach the theology of music and worship course with Bruce Benedict in the studies and ministry minor degree program. I share all these things, hoping that you'll pray for the invitation podcast and that you'll consider becoming part of the support team. If you're on the mailing list, you can find a link to become a core support team member on one of the mailings that I send out. If you're not a subscriber, go to invitationpodcast.org. And at the bottom of almost every page on that website, you'll find a subscribe button. Or you can even email me directly, josh at invitationpodcast.org, and we'll get you set up. The idea is that I'm going old school to raise some support like a missionary. My desire is to be in the prison more often and to develop the podcast as a resource to local churches in the West Michigan area. Things are already moving this way in a lovely, gentle way. I discern that this is God's will, and so there is no rush, panic. So I invite you to join me as we wait on the work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit continues to direct and to open doors. If you want to be in the loop, please subscribe. If you feel led to be involved in this emerging ministry in a more tangible way, we'll get you included in the core support team. And thank you so much for your consideration of these things. 
I hope and pray that this conversation with Christopher Hall has been somehow as encouraging and challenging to you as it has been to me. And I want to thank you for listening and joining me on this journey. Until next time, peace and love.